0: Hello my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today is the first of our guides that we're putting out over the holidays. They're slightly shorter than normal episodes. There will be two a week. We're starting with Gary Gerstle, Professor of American History and he's going to be talking about the United States Constitution, its past, its present and its possible future. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. This Christmas, gift subscriptions to the LRB for yourself or somebody else start from just 19 Find our best offers and a reading list to accompany today's episode at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. So we start at the beginning. When the constitution replaced the Articles of Confederation, it took significant powers away from the states, but it also left powers with the states. So what were the most significant powers it took away, and what were the most significant powers it left behind?
1: The most significant powers it took away were the power to mint and control the currency, the exclusive power to control the military, setting up a Supreme Court, so exclusive jurisdiction for federal courts at the national level, interstate commerce exclusive jurisdiction over that a right to impose taxation although not income taxation which becomes an issue later on in the history so a series of those powers which dramatically strengthened the central state because the articles of confederation was an ineffective mode of governance that left too much power with the states and the united states trying to fight indians in the continent and rival imperial powers just did not have the wherewithal or the centralization or the money or the coordination to do it. So if the Articles of Confederation had survived, the new republic probably would have failed. So the constitution was a necessary innovation.
0: And before we do the powers it left behind, were those new powers primarily located in Congress? Was that the thought? Because the presidency is also a new office under this constitution. But Congress gets most of those powers. Yes,
1: the understanding is that those powers are best in Congress. A very important part of the Constitution is that the federal government only gets those powers enumerated in the Constitution, mean, directly mentioned. And this reflects the ongoing fear of centralized state power. The greatest lesson that the American revolutionaries took from their revolution and war of independence was that tyranny resided in a centralized government, George III in parliament, and they were determined to set up a system that would not reproduce that. So even as they strengthened the central government, they were careful to hedge the powers of the central government in various directions, and hence the doctrine of enumeration and the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, which are really part of the original Constitution, ratified in 1791 says expressly in the 10th amendment all powers unenumerated continue to reside with the states and that left the states with still an enormous orbit of action.
0: And that orbit of action would it be fair to say that that's primarily social in the sense that many of the things that we associate with states to do with regulating people's lives still belongs in the states?
1: Yes marriage sexuality issues of privacy Uh, morals, legislation, whether you can fly kites, whether you can go to the theater, all these matters were left to the states in ways that empowered states to pretty much do what they wanted. So there's a built-in contradiction to the constitution where the central government is powerful, but limited. And the state governments, on the other hand, are endowed with, in a sense, undefined power, which makes their power extraordinarily broad.
0: And some of them were pretty intrusive in the early years of the republic.
1: Yes, yes. Legislation legitimating slavery was state law. States could set tests for religious eligibility for office. They could bar certain ethnic groups from owning land. They could intrude on people's lives in all kinds of ways, whether they could drink or not, when they could go shopping, how they had to observe the Sabbath. And state governments were extremely intrusive in terms of people's lives. So this is not often sufficiently understood. So it's not just that the constitution divided powers between the central government and the states. It also gave to each level of governance a different theory of power.
0: So you said that there were the first 10 amendments, which in a sense is part of the constitution, the Bill of Rights, but it was fairly regularly amended in the early years. Was there an assumption? I mean, it's very hard to answer this sort of originalist question. Was there an assumption among the people who up this constitution that it would be regularly amended, that this was a the start of something? Given how long it's lasted, did they anticipate that if it was going to last that long, it would need a lot of amending?
1: Well, there were 10 amendments, as you suggested, passed right away, the the Bill of Rights. But the understanding was that this was part of the foundational document. After that, the intention was not to amend this document much at all. The standard for amendment was set as being extraordinarily high. In order to amend the Constitution, you had to first get the support of two-thirds of each House of Congress, and then you had to get three-quarters of the state legislatures in the country to support the amendment. If you think of that in relationship to Brexit, there's no Brexit with that standard of passage. And this was deliberately set very, very high so as to make this constitution very, very difficult to amend. So the Bill of Rights is actually not a good indication of what's to come in the future because that is part of the compromise to secure the constitution itself. And after that, the deal also effectively said, we're not gonna amend this constitution except under extraordinary circumstances.
0: Two of the most significant amendments come after the Civil War. Is it fair to say that the Civil War is a breakpoint in American history? Is it a breakpoint in American constitutional history? Does it actually make sense to talk about a different constitutional order after the Civil War? It's the same document amended, but it's a different kind of state, isn't it?
1: Many commentators like to think of this as a very different kind of state and a very different kind of republic after the Civil War. And certain things change fundamentally. Slavery is abolished by constitutional amendment. That's the 13th Amendment, and then the 14th and 15th Amendment are meant to give citizens of the United States rights that cannot be curbed for reason of race, ethnicity, religion, and ultimately gender. So there are very powerful mechanisms put into the Constitution that had not been there before to ensure individual rights. This is often portrayed and was as a revolutionary step in the history of. The American Republic. What that story leaves out is the fact that in this revolution, as in many other revolutions, the revolution is often followed by a counter revolution in which those who have been pushed aside struggle to get some of their rights back. And there is a counter revolution in America in which the states claw many of their rights back that they had been forced to relinquish in the moment of granting these amendments. And so the states are themselves empowered. And very importantly, the 14th Amendment, which I would argue, was meant to impose the Bill of Rights on the states, which had not been the case before 1868, the states are able to manage their counter-revolution so that the 14th Amendment, in many respects, remains a dead letter constitutionally from the moment of its ratification in 1868 until a century later, the 1960s. So it's not until the 1960s that the full force of the Civil Rights Amendments are felt. And if you're looking for a moment of constitutional change, fundamental, in some respects, it's better to look to the 1960s rather than the 1860s. So in that respect, the Civil War was less of a transformational moment than it is often thought to be.
0: There have been some amendments in the 20th century, most famously prohibition and then repealing prohibition, some significant changes, the Senate being directly elected and so on. But the big changes are not through amendment to the Constitution. They are changes in interpretation of the Constitution and in practice. So, if one was to characterize, and I may be wrong about this, but the two biggest changes over the 20th century as the growth of the power of central government in relation to the states, and also the growth of the power of the presidency in relation to the other branches of government, when and how was that possible under the terms of this Constitution?
1: If you can't amend a Constitution, How do you change the powers given to various branches of government when the circumstances of society change so dramatically so as to require those changes? By the 20th century, the United States is nothing like it was in the late 18th century. It's an industrial nation rather than an agricultural nation. It has world-spanning interests rather than continental interests. It really requires uh, different tools. And the tools that you begin to see emerge in the terms of the growth of the federal government and, as you say, the growth in the powers of the presidency, that is almost entirely a function of the crises that hit America, triple crises from the 30s through the 1960s, the Great Depression, the Second World War, uh, the Cold War change the exercise of power in America fundamentally. And this is the point at which the federal government begins to eclipse the states and its importance. And it's also the period in which the presidency begins to eclipse Congress as the center of American power. What's interesting is that these changes were accomplished without constitutional amendment. And that's remarkable that through the era of the Great Depression, the Second World War and the early Cold War, there is no constitutional amendment fundamentally recognizing the change in the locus of power that has gone on. So the question becomes, how does a government grow like this without constitutional amendment in a polity that is dedicated to limiting federal power? And it grows through what I call the doctrine of surrogacy. You find a peg of the Constitution that clearly gives the federal government power to do certain things, and you hang on that peg activities that may or may not fit. Uh, So, for example, national security justifies all kinds of work by the federal government, not just in terms of defense and building up the military, but building infrastructure, taking care of civil rights, building a welfare state all of which, in a sense, becomes justified by the fight against communism. So it's really permanent war, which is what the Cold War was, or permanent near war, which is probably a better description of the Cold War, that secures the ascendancy of the federal government and secures the power of the presidency. And part of what war, near war, entails is that you need some individual figure able to act effectively and decisively in moments of crisis when the national security of the United States is being challenged. And that is what lies underneath what some historians have called the imperial presidency, empowering one man to act with decisiveness to protect the interests of the American people.
0: And to what extent does that also depend on the Supreme Court allowing it? Was this a revolution that happened because the Supreme Court acquiesced in it? Was the Supreme Court in its different guises instrumental in creating it?
1: The Supreme Court in times of war sees itself as being deferential to the executive, to the presidency. The best way to describe the Supreme Court in the Cold War era is deferential on matters of presidential power. The theory underlying this is that in times of war, you need to give the executive more leeway, the presidency more leeway. The belief of the jurists in America was that when war ended, that Congress and the other branches of government would be able to claw their power back. This is the model that worked in the civil war and it's the model that worked in World War One, and it would have been the model that worked in World War Two. The problem and challenge in America is what do you do when you have a state of near permanent war, which is neither declared, and if you have a war that's not declared, then you have no clear beginning and then you have no clear end. The Cold War in America, wartime footing, lasted from 1946 to 1989. Then there was a brief hiatus from 1989 to 2001. And America has been on a near-war footing since 2001. And in those cases, courts have traditionally been deferential. And the court has had a lot of trouble figuring out how to deal with executive power in circumstances where there is permanent or near-permanent war. In regards to the war on terror, there have been some efforts by the Supreme Court to limit executive power, most prominently in connection with Guantanamo in terms of ensuring those being held at Guantanamo have certain rights, even though they're not located on American soil and thus are not protected by the constitution. So there have been some efforts to to do this, but they have not been successful in stopping uh, an enormous drift of power to the presidency.
0: Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. You described the 1960s as probably the revolutionary decade in the evolution of the constitution, maybe more than the 1860s. And this is a new kind of society, as you said. Is this constitution sensitive to shifts in public opinion? Does public opinion, when it moves, move the constitution?
1: I think you could say over the long term, yes, but there are also substantial periods of time when that doesn't happen. The Warren Court, which was the Supreme Court of the 1960s, acted radically and dramatically to impose a Bill of Rights on the states in the 1960s because that was the only way to guarantee African Americans their civil rights. In a sense, what the Warren Court did was to impose the Bill of Rights on the states, and once the Bill of Rights was imposed on the states, blacks had access to individual rights and the protection of individual rights which had formerly been promised to other Americans but not to them. The Warren Court believed it was acting in consonance with public opinion and world opinion, that this was long overdue and and that this had to happen and that America was modernizing, that this was the intent of the 14th Amendment. But the way in which they imposed the 14th Amendment on the states was felt by many other Americans to be illegitimate, unconstitutional, and unacceptable exercise of judicial power and the undermining of powers given to the states which had stood as a pillar of American democracy since 1789 and 1791 and what the 60s generated was another counter-revolutionary movement saying that the constitution had been extended in impermissible ways and that it had to be restored to its original intent and the most powerful jurisprudential movement in the late 20th century was the movement of originalism, that the government can only do what the Constitution says it can can do, and that the Warren Court had been guilty of stretching this document too far. And the fact that it was being done by judges who were not elected and not legislators and thus not representatives of the people rendered those decisions illegitimate. And the primary task of America was to restore the Constitution to its original character. The liberals of the Warren Court subscribe to a different jurisprudence, that of the living constitution. The only way to make an ancient constitution work, ancient constitution that for all intents and purposes can't be changed by amendment, the only way to make it work is to render it a living constitution, which is that every generation has the obligation to update it and interpret it in ways that make sense for those who are living in that society. That is what guided the Warren Court, and the conservatives responded to that by saying, Who are you to decide what's appropriate The circumstances under which Americans should live? You can do anything you want, and you have reinterpreted the Constitution too radically. It's it's illegitimate. It's illegal. This arguably has been the greatest conflict in American politics uh, since this issue was joined under Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. And the deepest split arguably between Democrats and Republicans, is over the proper use of federal power. With the Democrats saying the only way the Constitution can work in a society that is changing in terms of its population, in terms of its industry so radically, is to interpret the Constitution liberally in a living sense for every generation. And the conservatives in the Republican Party saying... No, this is not the case. This document has to be interpreted according to original intent, according to what the Founding Fathers intended in the 1790s. And so the Republicans have insisted that the original intent was limited federal power. And the liberals have insisted that the living constitution requires that the federal government be endowed with extraordinary powers. And this division over the proper use of federal power lies at the root of the deep, deep conflict between Democrats and Republicans, and arguably has paralyzed federal government in America for the last 20 years.
0: Can i going to ask you a final question about paralysis in a second. But you could say there's a kind of double effect going on here. So we're talking at a point where there's a confrontation going on between the president and the chief justice, because the president talked about Obama judges, and the chief justice, John Roberts, said, no, we're just judges but what's happened as the Supreme Court has become the central point of tension in American politics is it has become politicized. So in a sense, something that is different from earlier periods in history is the extent to which judges are clearly being appointed to further partisan interests. Is there a kind of vicious cycle going on here? As the court becomes the object of politics, politics works through the court, so it becomes more of a divisive object of politics?
1: when I say the government has become paralyzed, it's Congress that has become paralyzed. And so it is unable to address many of the core issues that face American society in the 21st century. And this has put much more burden on the courts and the court as the one functioning part of the federal government. And so onto its role of interpreting the Constitution has been layered the obligation to give society a blueprint that can make America work. And this has, as you said, increased the pressures to politicize the court as both sides understand the stakes of what's involved. If you control the court, you control the politics of America. I think what needs to happen and probably what will happen is what happened once before in American history when the court was perceived to be similarly biased and corrupted by politics. And a kind of constitutional popular politics emerged, which said the court is not a just institution. It should not be given the power that it has. And we, the people, have to take back some of the power given to the courts, which we do by invigorating a process of constitutional amendment. Uh, And the period in which this occurred, the progressive period, the early years of the 20th century, is the one normal period of American history. By normal, I mean not the foundation, not Civil War and Reconstruction. The one normal period of politics where a substantial number of constitutional amendments were passed. And I I think for the health of American politics, there has to emerge a discourse that intends to diminish the power of the justices, either by finding a way to restore power to Congress or by amending the Constitution in ways that address some of the problems legislatively and in a popular manner in in ways that have currently been left to the courts themselves.
0: Is it a chicken and egg situation in that we wouldn't need to amend the Constitution if the polity wasn't so partisan, but precisely because it's so partisan, we're not going to get the agreement to amend the Constitution? Is American democracy stuck?
1: I think American democracy is stuck, but because of the Constitution, it also has a history of getting stuck. Because the Constitution fragmented power between three branches of government, it fragmented power between the central government and the states. It made large-scale change very difficult to effect through normal political times. And that is why American politics has often depended on social movements emerging outside of the formal political sphere to bring pressure to bear on the political institutions to bend in ways that seem necessary for the society to address the problems that it has. So I would say that this is not the notion of American politics being stuck is not unprecedented. And if we look at how past moments of paralysis have become unstuck, the energy for it has first emerged outside formal political channels in social movements and uprisings that are able to bring a kind of pressure on the political class to act in ways that they are otherwise incapable of doing. So I think something of that sort may be required in the next 10 or 15 years to render American politics unstuck and workable again.
0: Or the other thing that unsticks it is war, as you yourself have just described. If you look through those periods, there was the, as you called it, the normal period at the beginning of the 20th century, all the other examples, what unstuck it was war.
1: Yes, yes. And I think it's a good question to pose whether America requires war to solve the political problems that can't be solved in times of peace. The New Deal of the 1930s and the, and the Progressive Era of 1900 to 1915 are examples of periods of widespread reform in which war was not present. But if we look to the different legacies of the Progressive Era and the New Deal, uh, war came at the end of the Progressive Period, World War I, and a lot of the achievements of the Progressive Era were dismantled afterwards. The uh, same might have happened to the New Deal but for the fact that World War II was succeeded by the Cold War. And the great period of reform and the great period of, I would say, constitutional revisioning in America occurred in a time of war or near war, which was the Cold War. So I think it's a fair question to pose as to whether American democracy can recover its resourcefulness without resort to war.
0: Given that it doesn't make sense to advocate war in order to reform the Constitution. But as you said, there is another route here, which is essentially through popular pressure. We're living through a dramatic period of change in American politics. Do you see that popular pressure starting to build? It's building in some parts of the country. Do you see the possibility of it building as a national movement?
1: Yes, I do. I think there's the the popular participation in American politics has risen significantly over the last couple of elections, enormous enthusiasm, enormous turnout, new social movements beginning to appear. We are in a period of flux, and I think there is a sense of momentum building in ways that I did not see 10 or 15 years ago. I think also another very interesting development is as Congress has been paralyzed, The states are beginning to reclaim some of their powers, which had been on the wane since the Warren Court jurisprudential revolution of the 1960s, which put so much power in the central government. Louis Brandeis, a jurist from the early 20th century, once called the states laboratories of democracy. Uh, These were the places where new social policies would be worked out. And there may be a way in which the federal system is actually working as intended now, where one branch of government is paralyzed, meaning the the federal government, uh, that much more activity and innovation is now going on in the states. And if one totals up the work going on in all sorts of places, California, Wisconsin, Minnesota, New York, it may be a period of experimentation, gestation, in which new policies incubate, new political movements take shape, and that ultimately some of these movements will then make the jump from the states to the federal level. If you want to find the most positive stories of American politics, they are going on in the states. And that I I think is a reason for
0: hope. Could you put it even more strongly than that, that if we, so the Warren Court, the reaction to the Warren Court at the state level was to push back against liberalism. If we have a conservative court and conservatives are committed to state powers, the state reaction will be in the direction of progressivism.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, It'll be the height of ironies if the Uh, states become the progressive vanguard in American society, because for so long, states' rights was seen as a synonym for segregation, apartheid, white supremacy, denying blacks their fundamental rights. And the reason, the fundamental reason for the Warren Court Revolution of the 60s was to eliminate these powers that the states had. It may be that the longest legacy of the Warren Court is that by incorporating the states under the Bill of Rights, so they had to treat all their citizens in the same way, it still left the states with considerable powers. And it freed them, arguably, in a way to be genuinely progressive forces in American society. So it may be, and this is part of the hope of the 21st century, that federalism couldn't work in the 21st century in ways it never had before. Because federalism earlier was always mixed up with protecting the right of the Southern ex-Confederate states to protect the privileges of whites and ensure the subordination of blacks. If that issue has been settled, and of course there are indications that it has not been completely settled, but if that issue is settled, then it may free the federal system in America to work in a manner in which it's never been able to work in its history, where the states and the federal government can genuinely share a polity that allows for maximum
0: flexibility and innovation. We will tweet links at tppodcast underscore to stuff related to these guides. Next week, it will be Diane Coyle talking about economic well-being. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Our new, our, new, our, new, our new question is what is your favorite pop or rock band? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Rather than what did you have for breakfast? It listed some interesting answers. Uh, pop or rock band currently. Or ever. Ever. Yeah, no, all time. This is um Helen was Johnny Cash. Oh, that's interesting. So all artist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Artist. Oh. Marvin Gay. Good answer. <laughs> It wouldn't? Mm-hmm. Really? Oh, totally. Fit, totally fits yeah. for me. That's like, yeah, I, I was going to guess you. <laughs> so you I
1: have a funny know. story about that I can tell you later. Oh, later. do. <laughs> it's not really about Barbara Gay, but it's about my forgotten password. Oh.
0: Okay, I can see where that went. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sexual uh, healing. sexual <laughs> healing. Let's get it on. You're just typing them all in. <laughs> it turns out then your computer was seized by the FBI. <laughs>